0: I appreciate Sandy giving uh, me this invitation. Many months ago, he asked me to uh, speak in his stead this morning. If I would have checked my calendar, I would have noted that this is normally the day I speak at First of an. We have a Thursday luncheon, so I'm pulling double duty today. Two different uh, discussions, uh, the discussion I'll be having with you and then the discussion I'll be having with our group there at lunch little bit difficult to pull that off uh, your mind has to work on two tracks. We'll see how that goes. I've off to a bad start already this morning. It should be uh, probably among speakers the unpardonable sin to forget one's Bible and I was leaving church last night. I had my youngest daughter, who's six years old, with me. she was uh, asking me for. Uh, the candy on my secretary's desk, and a cup of water, and somehow the Bible did not make it into the bag, but uh, I have here with me this small Bible, and uh, I can assure you the size of this book is not an uh, indication of my esteem of the Word of God, but it uh, is my truck Bible. This is the Bible that sits in my pickup, and so uh, I've, got, I've got resources, I've got resources. So I will, be, uh, I will be using this one this morning. Uh, in your Bible, as I'm turning now in mine, would you join me in the book of Romans, specifically chapter 8, and in chapter 8 we're going to look at verse 28, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'll tell you why I've selected this as my text today. Uh, Sandy does not uh, ask when you uh, fill in for him uh, that you speak on any certain topic. He leaves that up to the speaker. But I like to try to integrate uh, something with the overall theme. And I know that Sandy has been in wisdom literature with you, biblical wisdom literature, since the beginning of this Amen year. And I know for the last uh, two weeks, he has been in the book of Job with you. And for the last two weeks, you've been in Job chapters 1 and 2. And those are probably the most familiar chapters if you just ask the person on the street, the average uh, citizen in the pew, what they know of the book of Job. Their knowledge of the book of Job may not really move past those first two chapters. They know about this sort of uh, strange wager between God and Satan. They know about Job losing everything but then, you know, the rest of it is dialogue and discussions with friends and and uh, maybe they know a little bit something about the end of Job when God comes and asks Job these, all these questions. But I know that two Thursdays ago, I believe Sandy's topic was the introduction to Job, and he called it Wisdom Behind the Curtain. And then last week, I think his topic was Reflective Wisdom. And again, in both weeks, he's been in Job chapters 1 and 2. So as a compliment to Sandy's teaching... I'd like to take you to uh, this passage that is one of the most familiar of New Testament passages, but it is rather Jobian in its connotations. That is to say, this is a passage of Scripture Christians frequently invoke on behalf of ourselves, or it's a passage that we quote to others, particularly when we are going through seasons of suffering, when we are sitting on our ash heap, as it were, as Job was, when we are going through times of difficulty, among the biblical passages that come to mind, this one that is open before you is a very common one. It's one that people often think about, often invoke, often quote when they're going through hard seasons that God works all things for the good of those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purposes. It seems to me that Paul could have called Romans eight twenty eight wisdom behind the curtain, because what we're given in this passage is a premise and a promise. I'll unpack that as we go on. But we don't necessarily understand how this works. We're not told how in every instance... All things God is working through for the good of those who love Him, the good of those who are called according to His purposes. We're only told that He does this. Additionally, it is my contention that many in the church today are not as reflective with the truth that is in Romans 8, 28 as we need to be, and in fact, we are sometimes sort of like Job's friends in our use and misuse of Romans 8.28. And I will uh, speak to that as we go. But here's what the verse says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That's the English Standard Version rendering of this particular passage. And the all things here... As you would suspect, I think most of us would probably be on the same page, the all things includes the suffering things of life. It has to. All means all. It includes the difficult things, the harsher realities, the things that we don't want. There is a normalcy to suffering in a fallen world, which is to say that no one is outside of suffering's reach. You can choose the neighborhood you're going to live in very carefully, the schools you go to, the associates you will spend time with, but you cannot guard yourself, you cannot protect yourself from the reach of suffering. It will get to you. It gets to all of us, whether it's disease, whether it's the disappointments brought on by all kinds of things, job loss, marital difficulties, a kid who goes AWOL on you, Suffering impacts every one of us. I don't care what Joel Osteen tells you, okay? And by the way, I think Mr. Osteen is very sincere. I don't doubt his sincerity, only his conclusions. Now, that being said, that may sound to some like biblical fatalism. It's really biblical realism. You take any person in the scriptures you choose, just about anybody that you are given, their life story in the scriptures, and what will be true of his or her life is that suffering will show up, including Jesus, Jesus himself. It's only fatalism to affirm what I'm affirming about suffering, that it is inevitable, that everybody is going to go through it. It's only fatalism to say that if nothing can be done about it. But something can be done about it. We are not left without resources, including Jesus Himself, who is our ultimate resource as we go through suffering. Why? Because Jesus is the guarantee that God knows what it is to personally, humanly suffer. And that makes Christianity very unique among the world religions, because we are the only faith that emphasizes a God who willingly, voluntarily Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I enter into suffering willingly. I enter into suffering associatively. We're the only faith that emphasizes this. We're the only faith whose God has wounds. And that's very important. And so we're not left without resources when we go through suffering. Jesus himself, his identification with us is our ultimate resource. But if you live long enough in this fallen world, that is subjected to sin in so many ways there will be times there will be circumstances for every one of us in this room when you have to draw upon every resource that is yours in Christ to endure to get through the difficult things Romans 8:28 is a resource and we have as i mentioned briefly both premise and promise here in this passage the premise is that God is always working God is always working he's never idle Psalm 121 says he who watches over Israel never slumbers nor sleeps he is always working that's Paul's premise the surrounding context establishes the scope of God's working in fact let's look at the passage again Let's read now, beginning in verse 26, and see the context in which this is set. Romans 8:26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And I am speaking to Presbyterians, so can I get a big amen to that. One of your favorite passages, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wisdom behind the curtain, according to Romans. The premise of Romans 8:28 is that God is always working, and taking this in its immediate context, you could think of it, if you want to put verses 26 through 30 in, in a picture, I would uh, submit to you the picture of concentric circles. Verses 26 and 27 is the center circle, God is working in me. God is working in the person in Christ. The circle that you draw around that is verse 28. God is working in all things. There is no circumstance, no situation, no people group that is outside of His working. And then the great big circle that's around all those, the largest circle, verses 29 through 30, God has been working from eternity past, continues working in the present, and will continue working through eternity future, whatever that looks like. The psalmists, I love the way the psalmists put it, from everlasting to everlasting. That's the scope of God's work. That's the big circle. God is always working out his purposes. We also call this providence, but that's the premise of Romans 8:28. The promise of Romans 8.28 is that God is working out His purposes for our good and His glory, that's understood in the entire context of Romans, but to say our good means the promise of Romans 8.28 is exclusive. It's specific. This is not everything happens for a reason, the secular counterpart to Romans 8.28 that people throw out there when they don't know what else to say. This is very specific. This promise is given to an exclusive group of people. Whose good is God working for? The good of those who love Him. The good of those who have been called by Him according to His purposes. The promise is therefore presuming something. Namely, it's presuming a relationship with God. Through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is of course what the entire context of Romans is spelling out, right? How one enters a relationship with God through Jesus, what God has done in order to give us the availability of a relationship with Jesus. And in this immediate context in Romans chapter 8, what God continues to do for us by means of His indwelling Spirit. The promise made to those who love God is that nothing, nothing thwarts the good purposes of God in the lives of those that God is working in. And the lives of those God is working in are the lives of those who love Him, those who have been called according to His good purposes. And this assumes that you have been reconciled To God, to love Him, when Paul uses this terminology, he is assuming, he is talking to people who the assumption is a relationship with God has been established. You stand justified before Him in Christ. You are declared righteous by the blood of Jesus. It means the grace of God was procured for you in Jesus before you even knew to go looking for it. It was there. Loving Him which means in the biblical consideration, when you spell out what loving Him looks like, it means obeying Him, it means trusting Him, it means forsaking what minimizes Him and pursuing what maximizes Him, it means following Him, it means honoring His Word, honoring His name, honoring His people, really honoring all people, all people made in the image and likeness of God. This, in the biblical consideration, again, is what it means to love Him. You love Him when you are in relationship with Him. Biblically, these two things come together. Loving God is being in relationship with God. Being in relationship with God is to love God. These two things come together. And when that is true of you, God makes you a promise. Nothing thwarts my purposes for your good. And to punctuate this, Paul moves in verses 29 and 30 to the good purposes of God ultimately considered for those who love Him. We have it concisely put in a statement in verse 29. The ultimate good purpose of God is to do what? To conform you to the image of His Son. That, in a sentence is the experience of your life experiences. That's the baseline. God is conforming you in all things to the image of His Son. Everything in your life, everything God is doing in and through your life, in all things, what's the purpose? To conform you to the image of His Son. This in a statement in verse 29 is the promise of verse 28 being experienced. This is what God is doing in our lives. This is why He has called us, why He has justified us, why He is sanctifying us, why He will glorify us. The ultimate goal of our salvation is that we become like Jesus. That's what we're looking forward to. And He is doing this even through and in our sufferings, which in an American context, you really have to sell. Probably a bad choice of words, but Americans resist this. I mean, I can speak to these things in a lot of different parts of the world, and I'm speaking to people who live it. You speak this in an American context, and you talk about the inevitability of suffering, and Americans want to say, no, 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 I can get around that. I can do things to keep myself insulated and isolated from suffering. And you can't, but it's a nice illusion that we like to believe. And we pursue that with everything in us. Suffering is the last thing we want to see present in our lives. But look at this biblically. If, as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, have you read that verse in a long time? That's a fascinating verse of Scripture. You know what Hebrews 5, 8 says? It says that although He was a son, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Try that on. Although He was a son, the son, Jesus learned obedience through the things that He suffered. If that is true of Jesus, how much more true... Will it be of you and me? In other words, what I'm saying to you, I'll put it in a question. Is it really possible to be conformed to the image of Jesus and not experience suffering? Wasn't it said of him that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering? It's really impossible. Now we're touching on things here that are really higher and deeper than we can reach in this brief time that we have together. But what this means is that God uses suffering to conform us to the image of His Son. That does not make God the author of evil. That does not make wrong things right, bad things good. Even if a good can come out of a bad thing, even if a right thing comes out of something wrong, it does not make the act that is wrong right. Wrong is still wrong. A drunk driver killing a family is, a, is an evil act. And even if God uses that event to break the drunk of his alcoholism and he finds forgiveness and reconciliation to God in Christ, good thing doesn't bring that family back. It's still an evil act that's perpetrated on that family. Again, we're touching on matters that are higher and deeper than we can adequately reach. We are, we are circling sensitive things about which we only know a little, but we can say this for sure. God's great purpose in our lives is to conform us to the image of His Son, the likeness of Jesus, and the suffering things of life God uses to do this. In fact, I would contend that the suffering things, the difficult things, the harsher realities of life are often his choicest tools to sculpt us. Martin Luther, I think it was, said that uh, the great thing about marriage is, he put it, it boxes your corners off. (laughs) That's a great phrase. That's what God is doing. We've got these corners and these jagged edges in our lives, and God's boxing them off. And usually it takes hard things in order for that to happen. Now, that being said, let me just give you a caveat here. I want to uh, ask you to be more reflectively considerate in how you invoke this particular promise in Scripture, especially how you quote this and when you quote this to others. I'm thinking of uh, times when I've been in uh, funeral homes and listened in as somebody uh, walks up to a grieving widow and puts an arm around her, and they mean well, but they say, you know, hey, you just got to remember, God's working all things for good, those who love Him. You know, hospital rooms, same deal. Come in, guy's laying in the bed, he's dying, and this guy wants to start talking about Romans 8.28. Now, what I'm saying is that when you blithely or glibly quote Romans 8.28 as a kind of spiritual fix-it, as this celestial candy bar that you vend for this moment when somebody's in pain. Okay, Romans 8.28 is the appropriate thing to say in this moment. Not only does it just come across as so easy for you to say, and most suffering people hear it as you're being well-meaning. They'll give you the benefit of the doubt most times, but inconsiderate of of their hurt. I mean, read the lament psalms. Even guys who were writing scripture still engaged their pain in ways that were, well, just read them. Don't misunderstand me. If you go out of here saying, Cole believes you should never mention Romans 8.28 to somebody when they're hurting, (laughs) you're misunderstanding me. I'm not saying that. I'm referring to a way in which we invoke this promise sometimes that comes across more trite than true. I'm talking about a way that we come at people sometimes when they're suffering as if they need, all they really need is biblical information, and that'll make everything fine. That's really the mistake of Job's friends when you think about it. They needed to minister to Job not by their words, not by the recitation of scriptures necessarily in that moment of Job's deep pain. They need to minister to him by their presence. They need to minister to him by their prayers. They need to minister to him by their their touch. And we can all do that. There is a time to say to someone Romans 8.28 things. But it's usually not in the immediate moment of somebody's pain. There is a time to say to someone, Romans eight twenty eight things, to say that the causes of our suffering are always temporal, never eternal. And we are eternal beings. To say to someone that the things that cause our suffering are always subject to God. They are never transcendent over Him. To say to people that the things that cause our suffering, they may pain us, but they will never ultimately ruin those that are in Christ. There's a time and a place to say that. But most of the time, what people really need from us when they're hurting is they need your presence. They need you to put an arm around them. They need you to offer to do something for them, tangible. They need you to bring a meal. They need you to pray for them. Don't go to Romans 8, 28 first with them necessarily. Just go to care and basic kindness, and God will open the door. You to minister with your words a little later on. He always does. Now, where are we? The premise is that God is always working. The promise is that God is working in everything for the good of those who love Him, and the ultimate good is what? That we become Christ like. It's the ultimate good, it's what conform to His image means. But how this happens, let's talk about the how. How this happens, it doesn't always follow a straight line, connect the dots, happily ever after picture. That's what we would like. But we're dealing with God here, and I don't mean by that that God doesn't give us what we like. I mean by that that God knows what we need. God loves us too much sometimes give us what we would actually like. Let me explain this. I want to say that uh, in fact if I was titling this message I would call it linear premise loopy promise. Alright? And let me baptize that word loopy for a moment lest the words like crazy or disordered or nonsensical come to mind when I say that. The premise of Romans 8 28 is linear. God is always working from everlasting to everlasting. It's the, it's the ultimate straight line. The decrees of God, the things that God has said He's going to do, He's doing them. And it's the straight line that runs through history. Pre-time, in-time, post-time. God is always working. Linear premise. But the way the promise works is more loopy. I want to give you the picture of a coil. Actually, you could think of a slinky. A slinky might be the best way to think about this. You know what a slinky is? Do you know that the, uh, the creator of the slinky died this last year, I think? I remember seeing that in Time Magazine or someplace. I used to love the slinky. It was one of my favorite toys as a little guy. I loved all the things that it could do. It's that coil, you know, is actually created quite serendipitously. The guy wasn't intending to create the slinky. He was trying to do something else. Now, you engineers in here will ruin my illustration by saying, well, a a coil is actually linear, too. Don't do that to me. Uh, That's that's not what I want to hear. All right? The premise is linear. The promise is loopy. That is, how God is working out His promises, it follows sort of this sort of picture of a a loop rather than uh, a connect-the-dots, sequential, linear, this happens, then this happens, and this happens, and this happens. Oh, and now I see the good. That's the picture I want to give to you. The promise is... um, This is hard for us, how the promise works out when I say that the promise is loopy. Why? Because the assumption we bring to the promise of this verse is that something is only for my good if I can see or experience the direct benefit of it. If I call it good, if it seems good to me, then it's good. We put ourselves in the driver's seat here. This is the assumption we bring to this verse. We want to be able to say on the back end of our troubles, Ah, oh, now I see why that bad thing happened. So then this not-so-bad thing would happen. So then that little better thing would happen. So then the okay thing would happen. And then the good of it was really experienced. Wow. That's what we want to be able to do. Why? Because we love connecting dots. We get very linear in our thinking with the, the promises of God. The premises of God, the decrees of God, think linearly. Think linearly. The promises of God, it's more like a coil. It's more, it's more uh, slinky-ish, you know. It's moving like this. It doesn't always work in a straight line. You can't always connect the dots. Most of you all know Tim Keller. I know he's spoken here before. He's the pastor of Redeemed Presbyterian Church in New York City. He has a great illustration of this, which he gave in a sermon that I once heard him preach on Joseph. I don't normally quote from other guys' uh, sermons, but this was just a a marvelous illustration. Actually, probably some of you probably heard it. Joseph is the Old Testament poster child for Romans 8.28, right? He says to his brothers, great line, you intended for evil, God intended for good. And with that phrase as his backdrop, Keller reminds his church of how they came into being twenty years ago. He says, I came to New York City and I planted Redeemer Presbyterian twenty years ago and it's done a lot of good in a lot of lives. And then he asked the question, but why was it planted? He says, I would have never planted this church had I not come under the influence in seminary of a professor who would not have even been on my campus had he not been able to get his visa problems resolved. He was a British man, he was having visa problems, How did he get his visa problems resolved to be able to stay on campus to influence Tim Keller to do church planning? Well, there was a student on that campus who had powerful connections in Washington. His name was Mike Ford. His father happened to be Gerald Ford, who happened to be at that moment the President of the United States, and I think he called dad, and and that day the visa problem was was resolved. (laughs) executive order, you know, Dad, I got a problem, okay, take care of it. So, the, so Mike Ford is there, Gerald Ford solves the visa problem, the professor gets to say, gets to influence Tim Keller, Tim Keller eventually goes to New York and plants Redeemer Presbyterian. How did Gerald Ford get to be President of the United States? Because some burglars broke into the Watergate Hotel in Washington and it was the downfall of Richard Nixon. And Keller builds all this up to this wonderful, facetious crescendo, and he says to his congregation, See, Watergate happened for you. (laughs) Of course, they do what you're doing. They all laugh because they realize that's a little too linear. (laughs) You know? That we'd actually have the audacity to say that Redeemer Presbyterian Church exists, you know, because of Watergate. It took Watergate to bring that into, into, into being. And that's the very point of Keller's illustration. Often we don't see. We can't see when we're in the loop. And you're at the bottom of the loop, you can't necessarily see the top, and you can't see the sides. We often can't see. We don't experience what the good is right now. Often I don't know how this thing is making me Christ like, this thing I don't want, this difficulty I'm having to press through. I can't often see how this is making me Christ like. Again, We usually don't consider something for our good unless I can see how I am being directly benefited by this thing. And this assumes that we like the outcome. So many Christians talk about being Christ-like and yet of Jesus it was said. I mean I missed this for so many years of my Christian life until I went through a difficult thing that I'll tell you about in a moment. And somebody on the back end of that said, you have probably talked about being Christ-like to people and have talked about it yourself for years. Well, now you know what it is to suffer. Welcome to Christ-likeness, he said. He said, you can't be Christ-like without going through suffering. If it was said of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, you will know the same. And you won't know the weight of it and the burden of it necessarily that Jesus knew because that was unique the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. But you'll know suffering. You'll know what it is to go through struggles and hard times. And so there's this tension. The tension is what I want to consider good for me and what God wants to consider what's good for me. Tension, not a, not a conflict of wills. God will accomplish His purposes in our lives whether we like the outcomes or not. We belong to Him our lives are no longer belong to ourselves. But it's when we can't see the personal direct benefit, what do we do? We question God's goodness to us. That's when we start asking all these why and what for and how come questions. Because we don't see the direct benefit for good. And the way we take the promises, we assume that I've got to see that or the promise isn't working. My wife Lynn has a friend who was widowed very young, in her 20's. She married a godly man, young man. They married in their early 20's. He was the big man on their campus. He was known and loved by everyone. And he contracted cancer in his 20's. And his life ebbed away very painfully and here she is 26, 27 years years of age. She's a widow. She ends up remarrying as often young widows do, as they're even counseled to do in Scripture. And uh, her new husband, her second husband, has turned out to be rather disappointing. I mean, she kind of had an all-world guy in her first husband, then she gets her second husband, and there were just some things she didn't know about him when they got married, and those things started to come out in the marriage, and... She one day confided to my wife, Lynn, you know, sometimes I really miss my first husband. And if you're looking for direct benefit, where is the direct benefit for her as it pertains to her experience of marriage, the way she's experienced marriage? If direct benefit means I have to see the, the good, how, it, how this does good for me right now, for me to consider that God works in all things for my good. It's not there for her in a tangible way that she can see. She lost her first husband, whom she adored, to a a ravaging disease, to get a second husband who sometimes causes her to long for the first. And this woman deeply loves God. What I'm saying to you is what I've been saying, and that is we cannot always draw... Straight lines of direct benefit between bad events and good outcomes. We can't always connect the dots into what becomes a happily ever after picture. And that doesn't mean good is absent. It doesn't mean good is absent. It means that the good is often more camouflaged. It means that sometimes the benefit is indirect. It means that sometimes the good is delayed. I may wait for years before I actually know what the good is i may never see the good this side of heaven it means the promise of romans 8:28 works more like a coil the end of which you may not see this side of heaven but that's okay because even when we sometimes can connect the dots and sometimes you can in the providence of god sometimes you can see how this happened, and then that happened, and oh, I see how God worked this for good, and you and the, and the good is a direct benefit, sometimes that happens, but there might still be even in those scenarios a deeper good that God is working out, and I may miss that. I may um, be resistant to that deeper good, I may not want that deeper good that God is working for me. Have you considered it ever from this angle? That the good God wants to work for me, I may not want it. God works His purposes for our good in ways we can see, but so often it's in ways we can't see. It's in ways we don't recognize. It's in ways we don't fully appreciate. It's in ways that we don't really want. There are a few First Evanners in the room, and I think they know how I came to them. I was kind of like a little orphan baby left on the steps, you know. Please take care of this, you know. And uh, six years ago, I showed up at First Avan uh, from a failed church planting experience in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I should qualify that. The partnership that I was in, it was a church planting partnership, failed. The church we planted still goes on by God's grace and is thriving and doing very well today. But I came to First of Ann, uh never thinking that I was going to leave Murfreesboro. I was quite content to spend as many years as I could, gone there to plant this church, put a lot of effort into that. But 18 months into the work, my partner tells me he doesn't think I'm a fit for our mutual work, and because he was the initiating partner, uh, I was the one who was having to, uh, to search for a new job. I was the one who had to go look for new ministry at the conclusion of 2002. I got to First of Ann because there was a guy in my Murfreesboro church who was a college student at Middle Tennessee State, and guess where his home church was? Guess what church he grew up in. He grew up in 1st of And when everything hit the fan there in my church in Murfreesboro, he came to me one day and he said, um, my church is, is looking for a pastor right now, and uh, I didn't think that would necessarily work out, and it didn't for the senior pastorate uh, because of my youth and inexperience at that time and, and just the fact that I was a nobody. I mean, let's just face it, I, I, nobody knew who I was. Who's this guy from Murfreesboro? But what did happen is that God opened another door at the church. The church came back and said, "Uh, "We've got some other needs, and we would like to know if you would consider them." And one thing led to another, and in March of uh, 2003, we were we were headed to Memphis, and have been here ever since. And I'll always be thankful to God that He had Thomas in our church in Murfreesboro when things failed there and I needed a new place that uh, Thomas knew how to connect me to Memphis. But as I look back, I now realize that much more was going on for my good in that failed church planning experience than I could appreciate at the time. And a lot of the things that were going on for my good, I didn't want. What I realized that God was doing now, and this is only what I can see now, there may be other things as I think this out years from now that I see, that I don't see right now. God was pleased. There are times when God is pleased to do more in you than through you. And what God was, I was in one of those times. I went to Murfreesboro thinking God was going to do all this great stuff through me. Twenty years from now we'd have this great church and, you know, guys would come and ask us, you know, how'd you do it? Man? And, uh, you know, all these church planners would come around and say, oh, wow, this is, this is great, you know, and pat us on the back for being these courageous Christians, you know, go plant a church. I now realize that it was a season where God was pleased to do more in me than through me. What God was pleased to do is He wanted to break me of some things. I didn't realize what a bitter, potentially resentful man I could be until somebody looked me in the eyes and said, I don't think you can do this. And I looked back and instantly hated a guy that I had been loving to that point. I came to Memphis and my whole first year We had a men's ministry that I was uh, responsible to begin, and it was going great guns, and I never enjoyed it. It's one of my regrets. My whole first year at First of Ann, I was lamenting not being in Murfreesboro. I was in bitterness of spirit. I was resenting my old partner. And what I see that God was actually doing in that situation is He was constructing a scenario where I had to learn how to forgive. And if you're going to learn how to forgive... You're going to have to get hurt. You're going to have to have something to forgive. I'd have been happy to keep forgiveness academic. i have been happy to preach to you about your need to forgive, but never have to be in a situation where it was required of me. I would have been happy to keep grace, a theological word that I exegete for you from the Greek, not have to show it to my old partner. God moved in my heart, worked in my life, and in 2004, my partner and I were wonderfully reconciled, and I honor him today and bless his name and love him again. They were just here in June and uh, shared a meal with us, our families. And so it's a marvelous redemption story. But I look back on that experience at the end of 2002, which was so painful to me. It was an experience of rejection. It felt like a betrayal. It came out of left field. It was a sucker punch, you know. I look back at that, and I don't. My my great takeaway is not, "Wow, wasn't it good of God to have Thomas in our church, so that when things started failing there, I would get here." That was good of God, and God did that. But my greater takeaway is the thing that so often I couldn't appreciate: wasn't it good of God to break me of my easygoing resentfulness, my prideful bitterness, which was my response? to somebody who hurt me, was to cut them off. I mean, I had just some gross stuff going on in my heart when I moved here. It's a marvel that first event hired me. In fact, I was told by, well, I'll tell you, it's Ronnie. Ronnie Stevens told me. He said, "Uh, you got to realize something. He said, you have moped through every interview you've had. (laughs) He said, you basically told these men who are interviewing you, you you don't really care to have what they're offering you. And he said, guess what? They still like you. He said, you need to wake up and realize the providence of God at work in your life. (laughs) Thank you, Ronnie Stevens. (laughs) We became friends that day. It was a good I didn't want. It was a good I couldn't recognize. But it was the good I needed. And I hope that uh, now I am a better forgiver. I hope that I am now easier on people when they do something I don't like. The good God works for us in everything is often in ways we don't always recognize, it's in ways we can't always appreciate, it's in ways we don't always want. But that's why following Jesus is an ongoing act of trust. You don't exercise faith in Him once and your faith is done. It's an ongoing exertion of trust and following Him and looking to Him and saying, I don't understand, but I know that you love me. I know that you've called me. I know that you're present with me even in this, and I'm going to look to you. And all I ask for today is the strength to just keep looking to you. If I can do nothing else, if I am racked with pain, whether it's emotional or physical or both, that I still look to you. And my eyes are fixed on you. We're always learning. We're always having to learn to defer to God what's really best for us because the ultimate goals of life belong to Him. They don't belong to me. I'm not the originator. I'm not in control of my life. He is. Sin is everywhere. And it affects everything. But grace is everywhere, too. These are actually the dying words of a priest in the novel by Georges Bernanos, 1936 novel called Diary of a Country Priest. The Diary of a Country Priest is set in a French parish. It'd be one of the worst places on earth to live. I mean, uh, Bernanos' priest is uh, existing amidst people who are hard scrabble. They are bitter. They don't appreciate him. They are intimidated by his innocent sincerity. There are so many ways in which Bernagno shows the pain and the agony of ministering in this particular context with those people, a place that was completely undeserving of the man. And he wanted to leave many times. Whatever good God was accomplishing through him in that French parish Bernanos' young priest, he didn't want it. He couldn't appreciate it. The novel is actually the priest's journal entries. That's the novel. It's the story is told through the priest recording his thoughts and his concerns and his angst and his confusion and his crying out to God. He's recording all this in his journal after he has these experiences with these awful people that he's been left there to minister to people who seemed wholly indifferent to him, wholly indifferent to God, and as his soul suffered these torments, so too his body. You don't know it as it's going along because Bernanos is a marvelous writer, but all of a sudden you start to see that his health begins to achingly deteriorate. We don't know it until the end, but he's got cancer. And he can't eat, and the community starts getting on to him and starts mocking him for his thinness. He's got cancer. He's dying. And then he starts coughing up blood, and it just gets really gross physically for this guy. He's in absolute misery. So much suffering in the young priest's life. So much illness and so much ill treatment. So much feelings of failure. Abject failure. But he stayed faithful sin was everywhere he knew this all too well but his dying words was grace is everywhere that's what he said when he died grace is everywhere do you believe that do you really believe that because i think that's why romans 8:28 works as it does why god works as he does Because although sin is everywhere and it does its damage, grace is everywhere too and it's doing its good. God is doing His good. Grace belongs to God and it is greater than all our sin. Do you recognize this? Because if you do, life becomes less about trying to learn how all the dots connect. Trying to discern how this and this and this could possibly work out for my good, it becomes less about that and more about learning to trust this God who has called me to Himself in Christ. This God who has given me life. And that is my ultimate benefit. It's the benefit I need the most. I need His life given for me. I need His life in me. I need my life in Him. It may take a long time For you to understand all the workings of God, it will take a long time. And we will miss so much of His workings in our life. But He works in our lives because He is good. And He graciously is working all things for our good. Whether we experience it in life, we for sure experience it in death. The point of living for the follower of Jesus Christ is not that we see how it all works the point of living for the follower of Jesus Christ is that we see Christ in our lives and our lives in His. We see Him more vividly. We see Him more clearly. We see Him more manifestly. That is the good that God is working for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purposes. May I pray for us? We thank You for this truth Lord, we thank you for your care for us. We thank you that you have given us in Christ so many riches. And Lord, we are so unappreciative so often. But you continue to be so good to us. Liberate us, please, Lord, from the perspective that believes you're good if what you are doing we count as good. Liberate us from the perspective that sees life as this quest to try to connect all these dots and understand everything, and because so often what we're doing in that is we're just looking for what we can take away as a good. Make us people who are resilient in our trust, and the fabric of our lives is not easily torn by the troubles that are common to men. Father, I pray that we get today a fresh vision of Jesus, a fresher knowledge of Him, that in our lives the fragrance of His Spirit is detected. In the places we go, that we spread a sweet aroma. And that you bring people to yourself today who can praise you for the good purposes that you're working out in their lives. Because you put us in their way. And you brought them to faith. You brought them to trust. And you have put them in relationship with Jesus. Thank you for doing that for us. It is the thing we most thank you for because it's the best thing we have going for us. Is your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray your blessings on these men. That you strengthen them for their day. That you guard and preserve their families. Take them back to their families safely this evening. We thank you in Jesus' name.